Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we speak with Ellie Perlman. She's amassed a portfolio of over 2,000 multifamily apartment units throughout the U.S., and she's speaking to us about the ins and outs of financing her deals. Of the many things I appreciated about this interview is that she's done very well for herself and her investors by taking the conservative route and not by getting wrapped up in the hype of the consistently rising real estate market. Her approach and mentality will likely serve her well given the recent mandatory quarantines, jobless rates, and overall market turmoil. Ellie and I discuss a number of things, but I most appreciated the insights coming from her previous profession as a commercial real estate lawyer. She was generous to share both her experience there and views on what you should be doing now, especially during this economic volatility and even the covenants that can get you when you're financing a deal. Although we didn't touch on it, Ellie has a great story where she came from less than favorable beginnings. I highly recommend listening to this episode and checking out her social media presence. Given the uncertain economic times, I hope this is a valuable listen for you. Enjoy the show. On the line, I have Ellie Perlman, who's a uh, longtime real estate investor and, well, an interesting person to have on, especially in times like this. When we made arrangements to have this interview, times were a lot different. (laughs) So it will inform our discussion, but I think probably the best thing to do is start off with an introduction about yourself, a bit of an elevator pitch, and and you've got an impressive career in real estate. And so I'll hand it over to you and you can uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually started my career about, I want to say, well, about 20 years ago. So I was always in real estate wearing different hats. In the first job that I did in real estate was basically a commercial real estate lawyer. And I experienced 2008 with my clients. And basically what I did was negotiating with commercial banks on their behalf to finance their projects. And experiencing what happened in 2008 with them really shaped my personality as an investor today because I'm a very, very conservative person. I know what can happen if you're being too bold and and a bit aggressive with your lender, with your lending assumptions. And I've seen how companies were destroyed, how projects were just canceled and how, you know, a lot of people lost a lot of money. And thankfully, I was not on the investing side. I was a lawyer back then, but I learned a lot from what was happening around me. So after getting out of the legal world, I was basically working for four years as a property manager at a commercial real estate company. And I learned the ins and outs of managing an apartment building, well, basically more of a retail building. And then after that, I went to MIT. I got my MBA degree and started investing not so long after I graduated. And what I do is, you know, I basically syndicate deals. I'm buying multifamily properties in Texas, Florida, and Georgia. 
and you know we buy about 100 to 500 units and we buy it with investors and we renovate the units we improve the operations cut costs and that's basically how we make money on real estate excellent i think there's a, an acronym for that model could you perhaps quantify a bit because i know you've bought an exceptional amount of real estate and have uh, have quite the holdings now where are you at so i hold with my partners about 2000 units some of them are passively some of them are actively and usually we close one deal every three to five months. Right now, things are a bit strange. We're trying to figure out what's the next step and when should we make a move because I definitely see opportunities around me, which we can get into later. Mm -hmm. But um, th that's basically, you know, that's where we are. And the goal was up to a month ago, the goal was to purchase 1,500 units this year. And of course, with whatever is happening today with the pandemic, we might need to go back to the drawing board and reassess our goal for this year. Understood. Yeah. Now, I think we should definitely get into both the difficulties and opportunities of, right, uh, you know, as of late, especially with this pandemic and how that's folding or unfolding, excuse me. But something that I did want to touch on is you've got a podcast yourself. You do a, a lot of work with content marketing. And I'm curious as how has that helped in your business and in you raising capital? Yeah. So basically, you know, there's a limit to how many investors you have in your network and how many you can meet when you go to conferences. And I speak at a lot of conferences across the U.S. and nothing actually draws investors to me and to my website more than social media. And so my team creates content and basically runs the entire social media platform. I'm more focused on the acquisition side and the financing, but they're helping to basically drive traffic to my website and by posting on social media on numerous platforms. And basically once investors go and check out the website, many times they leave their information and ask to speak with me and then we're having a conversation. And that kind of opens up the door to increase, kind of grow the, the portfolio that we're purchasing because the more investors we have, the bigger deals we can basically do. But yeah, the social media aspect is a very, very important aspect in our business, basically. Hmm. More and more, I think companies and well, real estate investors and, and those leading syndications are, are turning to putting their, their voices out there. And when I came across you, it was interesting to see just the amount you're able to do. And I would imagine it's definitely paying for itself, especially as you say it, it can attract a lot of people in who are very capable investors into your network so you can do bigger deals. So I would suggest anybody listening to check out your website and we'll put the, the information in the show notes because there's lots of content there. So great job on that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of work, but when you hire the right people to help you scale, this is exactly what's going to happen. You're just going to grow quickly. So you have to be able to invest and spend some money in order you know, to make a lot more. And how much in your MIT MBA did they tell you that social media would be a powerful part of your investor relations? Zero, zero. <laughs> yeah. None, it does not exist. Listen, I did learn a lot about financial models and how to run them, how to build them, how to read financial reports and how to scale a business generally. But yeah, a lot of things they don't teach you anywhere. You, you, mm -hmm. you got to figure it out on your own and there's a learning curve right there and you find 
the way that works for you. There's no one size fits all. And I just found my niche and I found my voice. And it's also, you know, I'm using social media also to help people. So it might find corny, but I really enjoy, you know, when I get a feedback from someone, it's, it makes me feel good. Honestly, when someone tells me, you know, you just changed my perspective about something. Mm -hmm. I use the information you put out there and it really helped me in my business or in my investment. It feels good because, you know, you have knowledge about a topic that many people don't. And if you can help and put content out there and help people, then why not? It's, mm -hmm. it's just part of my business and I'm happy to, to share information. So I, I definitely enjoy using social media for that also. Yeah, there's a nice value that comes and, and uh, you know, it is a good feeling when you know that somebody's benefiting from the work you do there. So yeah, congrats to that. It's a lot of work, but it seems to be paying off. Well, something speaking to social media where I came across uh, was one of the videos you did with another uh, real estate investor, I believe it was Joe Killinger. And mm -hmm. in there, you speak about your conservative nature when financing your projects and how you approach it. Can you get into some details about that, especially now, given the events that have transpired? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that and what you see coming next. But can you explain your approach to how you finance your opportunities, your, your, the deals you're in? Yeah. So normally, you know, because I'm very conservative, I usually finance my properties using a long-term fixed rate debt. And for the most part, it's going to be an agency loan, Freddie, you know, Mac, Fannie Mae or CMBS. And I like those deals because you know exactly what you're paying for each step of the way because the interest rate is fixed. We like to get two to five years of interest-only payments and it's amortized over 25 or 30 years. And it's, you know, it's pretty conservative in terms of the loan-to-value, the LTV. It's usually 65 to 75%. So we're not taking anything that is 90% LTV just to stay conservative. That's kind of how we structure most of our deals. I know there are bridge loans out there and they make the numbers on paper look much better. But my issue with bridge loans, and I might change my mind in the future, but I don't like the fact that they're for one, two, three, or five years, and then you have to refinance and you don't know where you're going to end up, mm. you know, what's going to be the environment. So for instance, if someone bought a property three years ago and they're planning to hold it for five years and they took a bridge loan for three years, now good luck you know, refinancing and putting agency debt on it. There's so many complications to agency debt right now that it's really hard to refinance anything at this moment. Just and given so, the, the recent events of the pandemic? Yes. In the markets? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I had in mind years ago. I did not see anything with any viruses coming and attacking us and affecting real estate. But I basically said, you know, if I'm going to take this loan, they can increase the LTV I'm actually paying a higher interest rate, by the way, but I can get, you know, maybe 85% or 80% versus 70% agency debt. And it's, it's pretty significant, you know, when you're looking at the numbers, but the bridge debt is only for three years. And then what's going to happen in three years? I don't know what environment I'm going to be in, and I don't want to take the chance. A lot of times bridge debt, especially bridge debt that comes with fluctuating interest rates. So right now you're paying maybe a reasonable 4% interest rate. But next year, you can find yourself at a 6% interest rate. So why take the chance? Now, I know that you can mitigate that risk by purchasing insurance that will cap the interest rate, but I still don't like the fact that it's fluctuating. I don't like the fact that it's short-term. I like to place debt that is basically longer than the whole period. 
So if I plan mm. to buy a property and hold it for five years, I'm always 10 out of 10 times, I'm going to place debt that is longer than five years just to give me the flexibility. If five years are ending now, now is the absolute worst time to sell. Why would I want to be forced to do it? So I like mm -hmm. to have the flexibility to hold it for a year, two more years, and then not be forced to sell in a really bad economy. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a thinking behind long-term fixed rate agency debt. How do you explain that to your investors in the sense that when you model out those numbers, you can tie in your terminal cap rate, you can tie in a lower interest rate, you can tie mm -hmm. in perhaps a refinancing in the, in the middle of the term there on better operating income. How do you explain to your investors that I'm not doing that and you're going to get a lesser return, but it's more conservative? What's that look like for you? I don't really say, you know, I can put bridge debt and get higher LTV and higher returns because it's all on paper. We don't get into that conversation. All my investors, when I speak with them for the first time, I say, hey, I'm taking agency debt. It's pretty conservative. Even if we're not going to see 17% IRR on deals, we're going to see 16 or 15% IRR. I feel comfortable with it. And most of my investors are conservative like I am because my voice is basically being heard on our social media platforms and investors are reach out to me. One of the reasons why they do is because they like the conservatism. Mm. So it's not something we really get into on a deal by deal basis. Some investors are asking to learn more about the structure. Part of the presentation, the investor package, when I talk about the deal, when I present it to them, part of it is definitely discussing the debt structure where we basically talk about the LTV, interest rate, fixed rate loan for how many years, you know, the terms, interest only period. There's not even a discussion of this is where we could have been if we took a bridge loan. Um, right. It's basically a package where we said, this is the debt, these are the returns, and we like to deal as conservative because it works even with a conservative agency debt. So if a deal works, only works with a bridge loan, then, then that's a pretty risky deal in my opinion. Now, up until, well, just recently, there must be often, oftentimes that you're priced out of the market for your conservative nature. How have you found that and, and how do you get around that? That's a great question. I'm priced out of the market many times and I'm okay with it because I'm not willing to overpay to get a deal done. I know it's very, it could be a lucrative deal for many sponsors because we get paid very handsomely from the acquisitions fee, regardless of everything that is going to happen after that, regardless of the returns and how the property is going to perform moving forward. And we've been doing well. We are pretty lucky that we can choose which deals to buy. We're not forced to buy them to survive because we're not surviving solely on the fees. Right. Um, we have other streams of income. Yeah, we are priced many times. I would say eight out of 10 times. The way to deal with it is to build relationships with brokers. So they will bring to us off-market deals. And this is, you know, most of my deals, I think probably 80% of my deals were all off-market because those deals, I'm not competing with 25 other buyers. I'm competing with two or maybe only one other buyer. And that's a lot easier to compete with them. Now, I have to say that some deals that we've won, we were not the highest bid. We were not. And we were chosen because the seller knew that we can close or the broker knew that we can close and he communicated that with the seller. So sometimes the sellers, you know, they have an option. They say, okay, I can make maybe half a million dollar more 
or $200,000 more and go with someone which they're a younger group. I'm not sure if they can close or I can take a little bit less home, but I know for a fact, or not for a fact, but there's, I have a higher confidence in the other group that they can sell, sorry, that they can close the deal. Absolutely. So you do that. They have that conversation in their head or between the different stakeholders from the seller's company and and they decide sometimes they choose us even if we're not the highest bid. Do you have any tactics that you use in that negotiation, whether it be directly or through your broker or your brokers that help communicate that you can close or that there's other things that you use in that negotiation to build enough tension that they choose you over another? Yeah. So when you buy apartment buildings, part of the process is to answer, it's a buyer questionnaire. And many times we're asked, what are the deals that you've closed recently and provide contact information for other lenders and brokers that you've been transacting with? They also ask you if you've ever canceled a contract, for instance, or did not close a deal that you're supposed to close. And those questions help. And then in addition, I write in the LOI, I basically add information about the company, about how strong we are and how strong we can close and basically talk about all the things that make the offer strong. I'm not just submitting a letter of intent with technical information about the price, the due diligence period and other clauses that are reasonably, you know, that's usually what you see when you submit a letter of intent. I also add a portion in the top that talks about our track record. And in addition, we're sending, I have a one pager on my company. And basically I talk about number of acquisitions we've done, how much we have in asset owner management and what are the strengths are. And it's a little bit better to see it. It's kind of a nice flyer with colors and some pictures and that helps separate us from other buyers, basically. Presentation matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I wanted to step over to your career previously as a lawyer and to your experience in 2008. What are you seeing that perhaps similarities and and how are you prepared now, aside from your conservative debt structures with the deals you do, but how are you prepared now perhaps to take advantage of opportunities that will come on the market? What are you seeing and what do you think others should be aware of? So to your first question about what I see that is similar today to 2008, I think that investors and sponsors that are being a bit too optimistic, I remember this optimism back in 2007, 2008, before everything crashed. Some of my clients, before they got the loan approved, they were already spending tens of millions of dollars starting renovating, or not renovating the building, it was actually in a land that they purchased and they were doing a development deal. They started digging and started building the project before they got approved because they were so convinced that getting the loan was just, it was a a standard procedure and it's going to come and and there's no way that the loan is not going to be. Yeah, they treated it as a guaranteed. It was kind of another thing they have to wait for and it will come in a matter of weeks. And then when it didn't come, they were basically left with a losing project because no one would finance it. And they already spent a lot of money starting to build a project. So I saw the same confidence today up to maybe a month ago when it comes to underwriting, when it comes to analyzing deals where people basically believe that rents are going to grow, that vacancies are going to keep staying low and you have to account for unexpected situations. So I saw a lot of that confidence when you're 
in a good part of the cycle, you tend to believe that this will go for a few more years, for a few more months, and, and it always ends at some point. So I, I see that confidence. I've seen it again. The second question, how do I prepare myself and what opportunities? I actually see a lot of opportunities out there. I see price cuts. I see a lot more off-market deals because sellers don't want to take the deal through the entire cycle when, you, when they market it. It takes about six months to close a deal. And so some sellers want to get rid, quote unquote, want to get rid of the properties pretty quickly. So they put the deals not in the market, but they basically want to sell them off market. So we see a lot more of those deals and the market definitely switched from a seller's market to a buyer's market. So we see more of those deals. The challenge would be how do you evaluate the price cut and whether that's going to be enough to compensate for the lack of clarity when it comes to delinquencies and vacancies. Mm. So before I know what the situation is in April and in May, I don't know if half a million dollar discount can really be enough because you don't know by how much the NOI, the net operating income has decreased. So once you know it, then you need to reassess the property values. You also don't know for how long it's going to be. Are delinquencies and vacancies going to increase only for the next 60 days? For three months, for five months, we don't know. Are they going to be back to normal at 70% after everyone is back to work? Are they going to be back to normal at 90%? We just don't know. So I think there's definitely opportunities out there. As long as we're confident that the discount in the price can compensate us for the decrease in income, then we're ready to move forward. But many sellers are not ready to make the adjustment. And that's what makes it a bit more challenging. But where people are scared, I think this is an opportunity to snag a good deal and, and buy at a 15, 20% discount. You just need to make sure that the discount is high enough to compensate for the lack of clarity of what's going to happen in the next 60 days. Mm, absolutely. And, and I would can sense that there is a, well, there will be some high degree of conservatism from your side too. And any deals that you will be doing will, will certainly be factoring in a large risk factor. Yeah, absolutely. So for instance, when we're underwriting deals, we're assuming three times as much as delinquencies as the property has today for the next two years, which oh, wow. is pretty aggressive on that regards because we're probably not going to be in that place for two years. But I don't know if delinquencies are going to increase by three times or by five times. I don't know. So stretching it over 24 months is one way to compensate for the lack of clarity of what's going to happen with bad debts in the next 30 to 60 days. And what do you see happening with new financings with interest rates? I mean, we've got two interesting things. One, interest rates now at, at record lows, followed by a high degree of uncertainty. And so what do you see as the commercial financiers coming in and, and what kind of rates are they going to be going with? And do you think they'll come out with different or interesting covenants that you'll have to work to? Is the financing industry going to change? So Corey, it already you know, changed. A lot of bridge lenders and life companies are not lending anymore. They just, they're waiting on the sidelines for now. CMBS is not lending uh, as far as I know. Only Freddie and Fannie are still in the market and they know it. So actually interest rates increased. They did not decrease because the all-time record low interest rate is what made agencies scared. 
and they're unsure what's going to happen next. And when someone is unsure, they want to price their risk. When they don't know how to price their risk, like I said before, they're just going to increase the interest rate to compensate for what they don't know. So we actually saw the exact opposite trend. Instead of interest rates decreasing because the feds are cutting their rates, interest rates increase because of the uncertainty. They don't know how to price the risk. When they don't know how to price the risk, they just add a higher interest rate because interest rate should reflect the risk. So if you're a good buy, if you're a good borrower and you have a really good track record, you're going to get a really good interest rate. If you're not, then that risk is going to be manifested in a higher interest rate. So because they don't know how bad the market is going to be and how short or long this whole situation is going to last, then they basically bake it into the interest rate and the interest rates actually increase. So we're talking about an increase quotes that I got for 3.3% a month and a half ago or a month ago, we're talking about 4% right now or you know 3.8. So definitely there's an increase there. There are other covenants like you've mentioned. So right now agencies are requiring you to have much bigger amounts of money set aside for the next 12 to 18 months. So usually what we're used to see is a requirement of $250 to $350 per unit per year each year that you have in reserves, and we call it lender's reserves. And now they want to stretch it instead of one year reserve to 18 months. And in addition, there are other reserves. So they want to make sure that you're actually going to pay because if you're going to sign a loan document and then have the money wired from the lender to the seller, and then you're going to basically try to go with a forbearance option and not pay for 90 days is a high probability that that would happen. So they want to make sure that for the next year or year and a half, you are going to have all the debt payments in an escrow in advance, for instance. So that's another covenant. So it just became a lot harder to get a deal at this point and to finance it. So arguably, you'd say that this is a, an opportune market to go out there and scoop up some deals. But perhaps you're going to have sellers who are, or buyers who are going to hold off until the smoke clears and they've got a better understanding of what this all is going to mean. But then you've got interest rates going up because the lenders aren't willing to price the risk at a rate too low or if they're even willing to price it out. And now they're putting in covenants, which if they're requiring you to have that much capital tied up, just sitting in escrow, that's also got to rob your, your economics as well. Of course. Yeah, it just made a lot of deals very challenging because the uncertainty just changes everything. You have lenders that are having more covenants in more rules in higher interest rates. You have buyers that are willing to buy, but they want a price cut. And you have sellers who are not sure if they want to pause the sale right now until we're back to normal. And that's what many sellers did. They paused the sale or some of them want to move forward, but they're not willing to give the price cut that the buyer demands. So we're in a very, very fluid situation. I think probably we have, we're going to have more clarity in the next 30 to 90 days. And again, there's still deals to be done. People who have been through the previous cycles, at least one of them, they're not afraid of this. They understand the risk. They understand it. They just need to price it. That's all. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't buy anything. I think fear is not the state of mind that is, is good for business or good for your business in general. There's uncertainty. You just need to price it. Mm. Now, if you're on the selling side or if you are on the, perhaps on, you know, let's go over to the ownership and the refinancing side. 
for anybody who's coming into this right now and perhaps were are unlucky enough that this just happened when they need to refinance, what tips can you give them, perhaps both from a legal side and from your now professional entrepreneurial side, and how to be approaching getting a decent financing done given the, the current situation? I would say, first of all, have a very detailed conversation with your lender to understand what LTVs we're looking at, what are the interest rates, interest-only period, and what are the other requirements that they require. So if they want you to have 18 months or 15 months of reserves, you have to know it way in advance because this is money that you're going to have to bring, you know, it's out of pocket. So you have to either bring it from your own reserves if you're buying it on your own or from investors' capital. You need, you'll need to increase the amount of capital needed to close the deal. So I would say for sure, you know, reaching out to lenders and see who's still in business and what the process looks like. I mean, that's the best advice I can give because each investor and each lender, lenders are just different and each of them has a different mechanism. I would also say read very carefully your loan document if you already signed a loan and read the forbearance clauses and understand there's a misconception that lenders don't need to, it'll be easy to pause the loan payments for 90 days. It's not true. It's not that easy. You'll have to show that your finances are not supporting paying the rent, that there's no money to pay the loan payments. You will not be able to take, if you're a syndicator, any asset management fees or pay your investors during that time. And it's not actually only 90 days. It will be throughout the entire period that the forbearance payments are being made, which could be 12 months. And during that time, again, you can pay your investors you can take as management fees and also you cannot evict tenants who basically showed proof of loss of job. So it's not only for 90 days. These restrictions are actually extended over 12 to 15 months. So make sure you understand it and be very careful before you decide to go in, in that forbearance path because it might trigger a bad boy carve out, which means that if you think it's a non-recourse, it can become a recourse loan if you don't follow exactly the rules. If you're negligent because let's say you didn't really require the right documents and it turned out after the fact that that's what happened, you might be held liable for that and you're not going to enjoy the non-recourse part of it. So be very, very careful. And I say that as a lawyer, be very, very careful. Have your lawyer read your loan document. Have your lawyer read the guidelines for using forbearance clauses to understand what are your risks and what you need to do. It's a very, very dangerous misconception. And I urge everyone to think very carefully before they do that. And I'm not even talking about what it would do to your reputation and how knowing that you've gone through this path, what it will do to interest rates and terms on future deals once we're getting out of the, the whole pandemic situation and things are going to be back to normal. Mm, yeah. I almost wish we had this right at the, the beginning of the, the podcast so people uh, could perhaps benefit from that advice, both from your experience and your legal profession there. So interesting. Now, if we're to switch back to the good times and being optimistic for the future to come, You've discussed or you've touched on a couple of times about you as the sponsor or the lead of the syndication charging fees for the work you do. What are reasonable fees and how do you package those up and how do you sell those to your investors? And what are those fees and where have you seen others go wrong with those fee structures? 
Sure. So usual fee structure on a syndication is about 2% acquisitions fee. So that's 2% paid from the purchase price. And that basically is compensating the sponsor for working, you know, for three to five months, finding the deal, having a team to help them go through it. We sign on the loan, we put some hard money down, which means it's kind of the earnest money. It can be up to a million dollars sometimes. So all of that, the acquisitions fee is compensating us for taking that risk and for doing all the work for months. And then in addition, sometimes there's between a half a percent to 2% an additional fee for financing, which you basically compensate the people who are signing on the loan. We sign on our loans, but sometimes sponsors need to bring someone else to sign on a loan because they don't have the liquidity requirements and the net worth requirements. So usually if you are taking a $10 million loan, for instance, you have to have net worth equal to the loan amount and liquidity equal to 10 to 12 months of loan payments or 10% of the loan. So sometimes you just have to bring other people that would be willing to sign on the loan. Now, in addition, there's a 2% asset management fee, which you're basically getting paid for managing the asset, and that's from the net income. So obviously, there's a good alignment of interest because the higher income we're going to get, the higher we're going to get paid. I mean, it's not a lot of money, but again, it helps us pay our employees and our asset managers that are helping us basically work with the property management company and manage the asset. And then on the back end, when we sell the property, there's half a percent to 1% dispositions fee, and that's from the sale price. So usually these are pretty standard fees. I think where I see people go wrong, I think very high fees are kind of a deterrent. And I think you know, we're getting paid very handsomely. We get also a piece of the equity when we sell the property. So I don't see really a need to charge more fees than what I've mentioned. One mistake that I see actually sponsors do is the equity split, which is 70-30, kind of an industry standard. Sometimes they play with those numbers. So the way the equity split works is that we basically say, okay, we're giving you 8% preferred return could be seven, could be you know any other number, which means money coming in from renters, we pay the bills, the expenses, we pay the lender, and then let's say there's $10,000 left. Now, $8,000, and I'm just using very simple numbers, $8,000, mm-hmm. let's say that's equivalent of 8% of someone who's invested money in the deal. So we use 8,000 out of the 10,000 to pay investors because we promised them 8% PREF. So we pay them first to meet the PREF because they're the first ones who are getting paid. In essence, they, they invested 100,000 and you're returning instance, 8%. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly, every year. And then everything that is left, the other $2,000 that are left, then we split it 70-30. That happens only after we pay investors. That's the meaning of having a preferred return. There's and a simplicity so- in the way you approach this because I've heard of some other just dastardly fee structures or not fee structures, excuse me, but equity structures and preferred structures that seem to get, it's almost like an MLM of, you know, if you do this and your downlink does this, you'll get paid this. And if this happens, you'll get, it sounds like you just keep it very simple. On some deals, yes, it can be more complicated. So basically on some deals, we have a 70-30 split throughout, 
which means also from the proceeds from the sale, if we projected 15% IRR, then we're going to basically pay that and everything beyond 15%, we're split in 70-30. And in some investments, there's a hurdle where we say, if we overperform above 15% that we've projected, then the equity split is going to be different. It can be 60-40, it can be 50-50. So that's another way of doing it. And it changes on a deal-by-deal basis. Is there a reason why you would do a deal with a more complicated structure than not or with more like an earnout, as you mentioned there, or a performance fee structure versus just a simple 70-30? Why would you decide to add on the additional bells and whistles? Yeah, so it really depends on how the deal is being underwritten. So some deals... Basically, in order to make the 15% return, it works with 70-30 split. And on some deals, we actually think we can get a lot higher than 15. And that's where we're going to put in place. So if I'm taking more money home and it means that investors are getting less money, then I'm going to go back to the very simple structure to make Mm. sure that investors are getting paid first. For me, it's not about making money on one deal. I want the investor to come back and invest in my other deals. It's also my reputation. The only way for us to grow is really put investors first. So if I make sure that they're happy, that they're being paid first, that we're hitting our projections, that's the main important thing. That's how we were able to grow so quickly. And so anything beyond that, it's just an extra. So I don't care. I, of course I care about money. I'm not here. You know, I'm not, I don't want to pretend <laughs> that I'm doing it. It's not a charity, but I care more about future deals than just making another half a million, let's say, on one deal. It's never about one deal. It's always about the future and the growth. And that's why, to your question, it's if the deal supports it, if we think there's more room, then we'll make a more complicated structure of basically as we grow, we can do 50-50 if we, let's say we said 15% and we actually performed that 17 or 18%. So that's your question. There are other more complicated structures. For instance, you can have two types of investors. One type is similar to what I've described. So they're getting certain percentage and also a piece of the sale price, the resale. So a piece of the proceeds from the sale after you sell the property. And another type is basically only getting income from the property, from the rents. They're not getting any piece of the upside, but they're getting a higher preferred equity. So basically they're class A. So they get, let's say 9% cash on cash. They're getting only 9% from the rent collections, but they don't get anything from the sale. Mm. Class B are getting 8% or 7% from the rents and they're being paid after class A is being paid. But in addition, they're getting a piece of the upside, basically a portion of the collection. And their IRR is going to be a lot higher because let's say we made 5 million profit from the sale. You have fewer investors that are splitting those 5 million because let's say 20% of investors are class A and they don't need, they don't want piece of the upside. All they care, they're willing to sacrifice that for a higher immediate cash flow. So that's another structure that we are willing to offer on future deals. We haven't implemented it yet, but that's another structure that we're using because we have to make sure we're adapting to the change in demand from our investors. Some investors, they don't care about the upside. All they care is about higher cash on cash right now. Hmm. 
Well, thanks for that explanation. I hope the listeners followed it. I did. <laughs> I, and I so. appreciate it. Yeah, it's, well, I think it's one of the things that isn't spoken to enough, even at getting into some of those details. But for those who have those questions, I think it's worthwhile hearing it from somebody who does this religiously. So thanks for expanding on that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the questions I had there was to almost a follow on with that was just where do you see your competitors going wrong? And perhaps I can touch on that and see that the charging of fees and overcharging and perhaps even in some ways getting too complicated when you don't need to be is what I would take away from your last response there. But anything else there when you see your real estate investor partners going wrong, where are they going wrong in your opinion? I mean, I don't really like to talk about what other people, what they don't do well. Besides what I've said, just not being conservative enough, thinking that the last 10, 11 years of expansion is normal and that's going to continue. That was just a big mistake in my opinion. And you have to be pessimistic in your underwriting. You have to know what's your break-even point. If it's 80%, that's not really good because it means 20% vacancy and you're breaking even. And any other tenant that leaves, that means you can't pay your bills, you can't pay your debt. So definitely focus on break-even analysis and know when that comes and don't be too optimistic. Just plan for the worst and hope for the best. There you go. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm just looking at time. I want to be respectful of yours. Is there any other comments you'd like to share with the audience regarding your experience in real estate and financing? And, and then a follow-on question to that is, where can the audience follow your work? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, we pretty much covered my experience. You know, at the beginning, I've been around financing as a lawyer negotiating with lenders prior and during 2008. And that was very interesting. And as a CEO of Lake Capital, I'm very heavily involved in the financing of multifamily properties across the US. So that's kind of a big portion of my day-to-day responsibilities. And people can find me by going to ellieperlman.com. So actually on the homepage, you can find the five critical components that every investor should know. That's a free resource. And in addition, I have a resources page where you can basically go to elliproman.com slash resources. And you can find a lot of free resources that I put there. Every month I add another resource could be a guide, a PDF, an Excel spreadsheet that can help real estate investors that are interested in apartment syndication or apartment buildings. Wonderful. Well, that brings us full circle to the social media work you do there and the content marketing. So uh, yeah. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been really informative and yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, Corey. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it as well and stay safe. Yeah, you too. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.